Please be seated. Please turn with me in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 2. The text is there listed on the bulletin, or on the insert, but also uh, if you have your Bibles. I'm going to ask if, Matt, if you could just turn this mic off. I'm going to use just the wireless. Thank you. Because it echoes a little bit. Well, you're turning there. I just wanted to let you know, and Pastor Nathan alluded to it in his uh, prayer, that the Long Range Planning Committee has been working long hours this week, and I got to see a little bit of their deliberations about the, really the details inside the building. And what I could tell you is this, you're going to like it. It's really exciting to see what they're doing, and so keep giving them time and prayer, and s- soon enough they'll be able to share with you how the Lord is leading uh, us to build a, a building for His glory. So keep praying for them. They do uh, spend a lot of time that we probably don't know about uh, studying this. So praise God for that, but also continue to pray for them. Today we are here to study God's Word at this particular time, Hebrews 2. We have undertaken uh, to study this Christ-centered sermon called the Letter to the Hebrews. Uh, this sermon has resounding impact us on us today as it did when it was first written and distributed. The first chapter is all about the superiority of Christ. The superiority of Christ over all that had come before. He fulfilled it all. Uh, he was the best of all prophets. He was better than the angels, even created the angels. He created all things, sustains all things, and then redeems us. All about Christ, chapter 1. What a foundation for anything we talk or teach about. Christ first. Then comes the command. Really, the first command at this point comes in Hebrews 2, the first four verses, what we're studying today. But notice the order, please. First, it's Christ's sufficiency, then it's what you do. Not you do this, and then Christ is your Savior, or Christ is sufficient, but rather, Christ is sufficient, now we go forth and do. And that's what we have, is our first command in the form of a stark warning in the first four verses of Hebrews 2. Here now as I read God's Word. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles, and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to His will." Let us pray. Our Father, as it says later in this wonderful book of Hebrews, your word is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Strengthen us, Lord, this day by your word. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. I grew up just five miles as the seagull flies, from Niagara Falls. In fact, there were rarely a day, especially if you're leaving, I lived on an island, and uh, literally an island, not just philosophically, but I lived on an island, and I would, when you go off the island over the bridge, you'd see the mist of the falls. That's how close we were to it. In fact, if you would look on a map between Lake Erie and Lake Ontario, there's a river that goes between this and Niagara River. Grand Island, New York, is right in the middle of that river. It looks like a big pork chop. And it goes in the middle of the river, it's upstream of the falls, and it's only a matter of time before the falls uh, wears back and takes it out, they say. So the water moves pretty swiftly in the Niagara River, as you can imagine. It gets white rapids right near the falls themselves, but even where Grand Island is, a few miles upstream, it moves. But we'd still swim in it and uh, enjoy boating in it, uh, 
you name it, we'd still do it in the river. The only difference is we were careful. In fact, honestly, and I say this with all honesty, it took me a while to swim in any large body of water without at least thinking of where the water goes over. Because that's where you grow up when you live near the Niagara River. It's just all going over the falls. And so we would swim at friends' houses that lived on the river of the island. And you would go out on the dock, and we'd do all sorts of fun stuff out in this river. We'd jump out in there, swim, but you always had to swim up against the tide. You could not stay still. If you stayed still or tried to tread water, you would move. And you move at a good clip. Uh, if, even if, if you swam, you had to swim pretty forcefully just to keep even. So it wasn't easy. We'd dive into the dock, and really when I think about what we did, the whole idea was you dive out, and then you try to swim back. I mean, that, that was what swimming was to me. Uh, we'd drive, we'd get big wheels. They don't have green machines anymore, I don't think. But green machines, you'd go to the end of the dock, and you'd do this, and you'd do a 180 into the river. And then someone's job was to go in and get the green machine before it went down, down over the falls, eventually. One of our favorite things to do was what you call the dead man's float. And I know in Kansas you do the dead man's float, but it's not nearly as exciting as doing it in the Niagara River with your parent or other concerned person watching. And the idea was to see how long it took before you heard him screaming, are you all right, are you all right? You're going downstream in the dead man's float. (laughs) You know what? Life is not a lake. It's a river. And there are currents that are moving against you. That's what it is. To be a believer in this day means there are currents moving against you. This is life. If we don't pay close attention, much closer attention, to what we have heard, we will drift away. We will drift. If you just try to tread water, you will drift away. You're kidding yourself. You have to swim. You have to engage in the journey because the current is coming. It's, it's, it's against us. It's forcing us to do things that hinder our walk with the Lord. In fact, if you were to quantify this text, I would say that there's a current of forces that work against our growing in the Lord. We are exhorted then by these verses against drifting by clinging to what we have heard. And what is that? To Christ. To Christ. That's what stops the drift. Let's look at the passage by asking a few questions. First of all, what does it mean to drift away. I want to be very clear. Hebrews builds uh, to a crescendo this idea of leaving the covenant community, which we term as apostasy. This first reference to drifting away is not speaking to that. It's a very pastoral reference to those who are just simply wavering under the pressures we deal with, and you're drifting away from what we have heard and learned about Christ. It's talking about a very, a very real dynamic in the Christian life that happens when these forces come upon us, and it's entreating us to defend against it. Look at the first verse. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. Literally, to drift means to glide away from something, to carelessly allow something to slip away. Uh, that's why the analogy I started with works very well, that we would drift along with the current. Sometimes the current is violent, but oftentimes it's very subtle. It's forceful, but it's subtle. We drift away. So we must pay much closer attention, the text says, to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. From what? Drift away from what? Look at it closely. Verse, the first part of verse 1. Therefore, therefore, going back to the teaching about Christ in chapter 1 of Hebrews, Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. What we have heard 
is about Christ. It's about our anchor, Christ. This is what we will drift away from if the forces have their effect on us. Let's specifically identify what we have heard. I say Jesus, and that's simple enough, but what do I mean? Well, first of all, the immediate context reveals this is what the author is speaking of. Uh, What we have heard, the immediate context of Hebrews 1 is all about Jesus. Hopefully you remember. It's this building picture of Christ's supremacy. Not a trashing of the Old Testament, but rather a fulfilling of it. All the prophets had said had now come to, to being in Christ. And so what the prophets say have credence now because of Christ's fulfillment, but we look to the ultimate prophet, Christ. And the angels, as powerful and as glorious as they are, Jesus is more powerful. He created them, and he's more powerful. And he, and he has much better standing with God. The angels have great standing. They're God's servants. But Jesus has been given the place, the name above all names. So we have this wonderful, hardly could be a higher picture of Jesus than Hebrews 1. So that's what we have heard, brothers and sisters. That's what we've heard. And we must pay much closer attention. Have you ever seen those words in the New Testament? They don't exist. It's, it's so emphatic that you, we must pay much closer attention. It's as if to say, listen, you've heard it all. You all know it. You're astute. You know quite a bit. You can pass a lot of exams. You could give a basic confession of your faith. But that's not all. You must pay much closer attention to what you've heard. Not just that you can say the right thing about Jesus, but what does it mean? How does it apply to every possible part of your life? Is it just a component, or is it the whole of your life integrated in who Christ is, in who you are in him? Pay much closer attention, it says. He's talking to church people. These are people who are Jewish people. So it's not just talking about the person who just came to Christ and saying, you've got to pay close attention like you're talking to a little child. It's talking to people that are churched. Pay much closer attention to what we have heard. What have we heard? We've heard about Christ in dynamic fashion in first, the first chapter. But I think the author is also speaking to this body of believers, which is much like us as far as heritage goes, Something else, referring to the overall apostolic witness. If you would think in terms of Hebrews 1 being the immediate context, Jesus Christ, his superiority, now think of the whole message. If you were to quantify the whole message of this next ring, which would be the apostolic teaching, who would be the focus? What does Paul say? I preach Christ and Christ crucified. And all the New Testament witnesses speak to the same thing, to Jesus Christ, his coming for sinners, his atoning death for the glory of God, All of this is, that's a simple way of putting what is a New Testament message. It's the same as Hebrews 1, Christ, superior. It's got all its details, and we spend our whole lives studying those details, knowing that we must must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, what we've heard in Hebrews 1, and what we've heard from the apostles. Remember, they had the apostles as guest speakers at their church. I mean, they would come and they would visit. That'd be tough as the pastor of that church to follow up Paul the next week. But even the elders of the church were appointed by, uh, by the apostles. So what we have heard is the apostolic witness, and it's definitely quantified in Hebrews 1. But you know and I know that the witness of Christ is not just in Hebrews 1 and just in the New Testament witness. It's in the prophetic witness of the whole Old Testament. You know, Over 66% of the Bible is Old Testament, and it's all saying the same thing as the New Testament in more veiled form, but it's Christ. Genesis 3 promises the coming of Christ, the gospel in, in seed form. And throughout, throughout the Old Testament, whether it be the preserving of Noah and his family, whether it be Abraham offering his only son, all these pictures of Christ, the sacrificial system, which seems barbaric, but if you understand what it is, it's a picture of Christ who will be slayed for us. 
Isaiah prophesying in detail who Christ is. The Psalms actually uttering the words of Jesus on the cross some hundreds of years ahead. It's all about Christ. If you want to know one simple thesis of the Bible, it's Jesus Christ. In its Old Testament, New Testament, Hebrews 1, pay close, much closer attention to what you have heard. And what we have heard is the Scripture, the prophetic witness, the apostolic witness, Christ himself given to us by this revelation. And right down to Hebrews 1, the immediate context, verse 1 speaking of, pay much closer attention to what we have heard. Lest you drift away. Sober, sober warning. What do you think, by the way, causes drifting away from this message? And let's, it's not just the message. I hope you realize that. We're not talking about just an academic study of who Jesus is. It's spending your life walking with the Lord. And the way we walk with anyone is to come to know them better. And the way you know them better is by what is revealed about them. That only happens with spending time. So it's not just to have to be, the ability to write a theological treatise. It's to say I'm walking with Jesus, meaning I'm studying what is revealed about him, which is the whole of the scriptures, living your life that way, building it into the fabric of your family's being. What causes us to drift away from this? Because that's essentially what causes us our heartache, our problems, our misery even. Let me just give you a few suggestions that I think are scriptural that help us understand forces at work against us that possibly cause drift. First of all, I would call it the force of familiarity. What I mean by this is that you are a professing Christian, you've been one for as long as you can remember possibly, and you've just gotten stagnant. You've just gotten cold. Uh, you have to ask the Lord to restore in you the joy of salvation, the initial salvation. And we just get, we get cold in this, and this is a common problem for those of us who have been believers a long time. You know what I'm talking about. You become safe. You become boring in the kingdom. I mean, you give enough to just be a giver, but you don't give till it hurts. You, whether that be the time you invest, whether that be the money you invest, whether it's the resources you have, you give just enough to be considered a pretty giving Christian. And on the bigger pale of America, you know, we're really giving. And your standard is always set by the middle, the middle denominator, you know, kind of what's average. And you just live this kind of dull life for the kingdom. And what you're doing is you're treading water. The familiarity has caused you to tread water. And what happens when you tread water in a current? It's a, you're fooling yourself. You're really moving backwards. You're drifting away. And this is what's so beautiful about the words of John in Revelation, Jesus' words to the church at Ephesus. I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first, your first love. This force of familiarity can really, really have its effect on us. It's part of the forceful current working against us. I would also submit to you, not only is a force of familiarity uh, real in our lives, but also the force of busyness. And I'm sure no one here has a problem with busyness. I recognize that. But in case someone does, perhaps you mean well. You love the Lord. You get to spend more and more time with the Lord when you're retired, when your job responsibilities change, when your children grow up. When you have this, when you have that, and your life gets busier and busier and busier, and at the end of it, you've done very, very little for eternity. But you got a great 401k. Busyness is sucking down more Christians than about anything in our day because we're throwing ourselves off after stuff that moths will eat up and destroy. The force of busyness is causing many, many to drift. We all 
find ourselves chasing after fool's gold at times. In fact, I would even say this in addition to that. Sometimes the busyness might be things for the kingdom. In other words, we're busy, 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 and then we add more busyness uh, into our schedules that are, on the surface, you know, they're serving the Lord. And we grow weary in well-doing, as it says in Galatians. Let us not grow weary of, well, of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. Certainly, the force of busyness is stark in our lives today, especially as modern Americans. How about the force of peer pressure? And I specifically want to speak to young people. Basically, if you're younger than me, listen. And if you're older than me, listen too. The force of peer pressure. The world around us, brothers and sisters, is fundamentally opposed to Christ. Now, I think the church can change that. But for the time being, let's call it what it is. The current is working against us. Our sinful flesh often likes to play to not God our Father, but the opinions of others. And I think this is especially difficult, and I hope uh, those of us who are older now and have kids and are watching our children grow up, I hope we have patience with our young adults and our teenagers because they are living in a time with just intense pressure to wear certain clothes, listen to certain music, go to certain uh, movies, uh, have certain friends, have certain relationships, whether they want to or not, and act a certain way in those relationships. And we sometimes, as we get older, forget how pressuresome that is and how awful it is to have to be under that. And the problem with it is, I think the reason why they struggle so much, our young people, is because they watch their parents doing the same thing. They got to have that car that someone else has. They got to climb that corporate ladder. That's what you do. You got to race after this. You got to be gone all week to earn a living. You got to do this. You got to do that. And they watch their parents doing it so they can please man. And they say, who are you to tell me that I should stop wearing this or doing that? That's what you're doing. And the force of peer pressure comes down on us. 1 Corinthians 15.33, do not be deceived. Bad company sometimes ruins good morals. You know that's not what it says. Bad company ruins good morals. Kids, hear me. They will ruin bad morals. I know you think you're strong at the front end, but trust me, they'll wear you down. Brothers and sisters, adults, same thing. Same thing. I don't mean hide yourself, you know, dig your, a pit and put your head in it. I just mean be aware. Be aware. Be supported. Understand. Second Corinthians, it says, I feel a divine jealousy for you, Paul writing, for I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. But I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. It'll be easy to lead astray. And isn't life short, brothers and sisters? I mean, are we not yet coming to grips with the fact that it's going to go by really, really fast? What do you want to say at the end of it? What did you invest in? You know, what did the Lord use you in, in building up? This force of peer pressure is clouding our vision in so many ways. How about the force of our sinful flesh? We all can relate with this. Nothing will keep your walk at a standstill like indulging the flesh. And all of us will struggle with indulging the flesh, sinning, but particularly letting a certain object or a certain activity take hold of us, that it then takes mastery over us, and with all the well-meaningness we have in our hearts, we can't break free from it. And what it does, it has the effect of enslaving us, and then we feel shame, and so we don't seek his word, and we don't pay much closer attention to what we've heard, but we're so ashamed of what we're involved in, we can't get out of it. Now, think of the analogy again. If you're floating away, you can't, you're tied up, 
and you're floating away in that river, what do you need at that moment? You need help. Yell for help so your brothers and your sisters can come alongside you and grab your arms and bring you to shore. So if you're at that stage of indulging the sinful flesh, and you know what I mean, you're not going to be able to get out of yourself. You're going to need someone to help you come to shore. This force of our sinful flesh neutralizes so many brothers and sisters in the Lord. This is why Peter says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. The very thing that feels so good actually hurts you. It wants to kill you. Try to swim with a huge bronze idol. How far would you get in the river with a big bronze idol? You can't swim with that idol in your life, can you? Only when that idol is dropped or taken away can you start moving against the tide. The force of our sinful flesh. The force also, this is one I added on, that really, I think it may be unique. Uh, I don't, it's not unique because Jesus addresses it, but I hear it a lot and I experience it myself. I'll call it the force of worry and anxiety. Worry and anxiety. We're a worried generation in many ways. I hear people talk and they speak of worrying about their children's future, worrying about human relationships that they cannot control, worrying about needing something material. It's preoccupying them to the point where they they forget any promise of God to meet their needs and they just worry, worry. The prospect, prospect of sickness, the prospect of this, the prospect of that. And all the while, time is wasted while we worry. In fact, there's a funny story told about worry. There's this lady. Story goes, anyways. Having trouble getting to sleep for years, she was she was scared that a burglar was going to come in and take their stuff and kill them. And so she was worried about this. And for years, she'd make her husband get up, no matter even though she checked everything, she'd make her husband get up and check all the doors and all the windows again every night for years. So finally, there's some noise downstairs. It finally happened. A burglar gets in. So the husband goes downstairs. And stops the burglar dead in his tracks and says, Good evening. I'm pleased to see you. Come upstairs and meet my wife. She's been waiting 10 years to meet you. <laughs> worry. You know, Jesus addressed worry in his earthly ministry, and you could think of places he addressed it. Uh, tomorrow has enough worries of its, or today has enough worries of itself, and so forth. But there's another passage that I found to speak to it as well Luke 21, verse 34. Watch yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and cares of this life, and that day come upon you suddenly like a trap. What he means is that day that he comes, that ultimate day, that we get so weighed down with today and our worries for today, weighed down, our hearts weighed down, that we're immobilized and the day comes upon us. What a picture. That's what worry does, and it's a force to be reckoned with. Okay, I've laid out these different forces. We all feel a certain twinge whenever we hear these things. How can we then defend my brothers and sisters against drifting? I don't want to leave you just telling you things that you probably know and probably wrestle with, but how do we defend against drifting? Look at verse 1 and the following verses with me. I think we'll find our answer. <clears throat> verse 1, Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. I hope you recognize that these studies we do, these efforts to learn God's Word, are not just exercises to keep pastors busy, elders busy, because we're supposed to do it. It's because we believe that the Word of God has the answers for this life. That's why we spend time with it. That's why we counsel you that way. Yeah, I could pull off all sorts of books of how to do this, and how, but let's go to the Word, the eternal Word, and ask how God wants us to do it. And go from that level. And it's hard. I'm not saying it's easy. I don't have magic bullets for you. 
None of us do. But the word is, is effective. It's, it transforms and it does its work. It works. And so we go to it. We pay much closer attention, see it in a different light, not as a textbook, but a book of life. And we go to it for our answers. That's, that's why you have a company of believers to help you in that walk. Let's continue to look. Verse 2. For since the message declared by the angels proved to be reliable and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution. What does this mean? The message declared by the angels. This is a reference to the giving of the law in the Old Testament. The angels assisted in giving Moses the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments. Acts 7.38, as well as passages in Deuteronomy say this. Listen to Acts 7.38. This is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him at Mount Sinai and with our fathers. He received living oracles to give to you. So the angels, the angelic host, had part in giving the law. They attest to its veracity, its truthfulness, its reliability. He gives it to the people of God. The people of God receive it. And as a proof to how reliable it is, God is just to defend his law. And so when it's violated, he brings retribution for it because he's just. Now, you know and I know if you're covered in the blood of Christ, that retribution went to who? To Christ, even for the Old Testament saint. It went to Christ. But the point is, he's just. He doesn't ever let anyone go. Every sin will be accounted for. Just praise God that your sin and my sin fell upon Christ. Every one. He didn't, even, he didn't overlook any of my sins. He poured them all on his son. This is a just God, a reliable God. In that light, in that light, I ask you, how can we neglect so great a salvation? In fact, there's a Welsh preacher who was spoken of named Howell Thomas. And beginning his sermon, he's an older guy, so he had a lot more ethos than I could possibly muster. He looked upon the congregation who were like his children, and he, and he kind of got over before the days of microphones, and he said, he said, I have one question to ask you, friends. I cannot answer it. You cannot answer it. If an angel were here, an angel could not answer it. Every eye was locked on him, the dead silence in the room. He proceeded, the question is this, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? You could hear a pin drop, I'm sure, in that day when he said that. I hope the pin still drops today. How can we neglect? What salvation? What do you mean by salvation? Salvation from something, but brothers and sisters, let us not lose this. Salvation to something. It's not just about salvation from something. We've been saved from God's divine just wrath. Saved from it. We don't receive it anymore. Those who deserve his wrath and judgment, we get his mercy and his grace. So we're saved from divine judgment. That, that's enough, right? We can go home with that. But he saves us to something. That's why it's a great salvation. He saves us to be adopted as sons and daughters. To not just have our sins forgiven, but now taken into his family and given the rights of sons and daughters. Adoption. We're justified. We're being sanctified. We'll be glorified. We're saved from something to something wonderful and glorious. That's a great salvation. But let me be more personal with you. This is how it plays out in your own life. This is how great salvation is. Uh, not too long ago, a couple weeks ago, uh, Sherry and I had a little disagreement. Let's put it that way. And we have a king-size bed, and we have a policy that we never go to bed before we reconcile. If there's a disagreement that we have between each other, disagreement is a sanctified way of saying a fight. So we have this disagreement, and we get on either side of the bed, because it's a big old bed. You know, king-size beds are big. And so we're on the very outskirts of it. You could fit five people between us when we're like that. <laughs> And so I see the mound on the other side of the bed, and I'm on the other side of the bed, and we're both going to stay. You know, I don't even remember what exactly it was. That's, and isn't that usually the case? 
But our pride gets a hold of us. Our dark hearts get a hold of us. And we decide, we're not gonna, well, I'm not going to repent of anything until they do. They started it. And so we're sitting there, laying in bed. Who knows what's going on in both our minds, but we aren't going to say anything. And we're, we're sitting there, we're sitting there, and then Sherry says to me, she goes, I want to ask your forgiveness. And she said what she wanted to ask for forgiveness for. And I can tell you, I just, my heart was so dark. I thought to myself, how? I should have said it first. And I, it, this glimpse, this glimpse of the darkness of my heart at that moment that you can all relate with. It, you don't tell everyone about it, and I'm not going to get up every week and do this, but I'll tell you that the fact of the matter is it's real. My heart's wicked and deceitful. And it's only when the Holy Spirit convicts it that we even do anything that would honor God. But it's also scary to think of how dark and selfish it is, that I would sit over a petty matter and just make sure she came to me first. How selfish and sick is that? That's the human heart. That's how great salvation is. And I'm not telling you so I can stay in my sin. I'm telling you because I've been saved from the retribution I deserve for that sin, but I've been saved to changing. I don't have to keep acting that way with her. I can change. I can rep- I, the next time I need to do different. And I can because I'm saved from something to something. That's a great salvation. Just don't ask her if I changed right away. <laughs> if I didn't think you can relate, I wouldn't say it. That's how we defend against drifting. We remember what we, we pay much closer attention to what we have heard. It's such a great salvation. Look at verse 4. While God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. This is a parallel to the way the angels gave, gave the Ten Commandments. In the same way, the apostles came as the prophets of God in the New Testament and they were accompanied with signs, miracles, and, and great wonders. And the reason why God allowed those spiritual gifts for that time is so that they would have credibility with which, what they spoke. The reason why I say that they don't, those kind of revelatory gifts that confirm their ability to give revelation, the reason why I say those have ceased is because their need is no longer, is not not necessary anymore because we have the apostolic record in the scriptures. But as they were being given, God worked those signs and wonders through them. It's not that God doesn't do miracles, it's just that the Holy Spirit's particular gifts now are focused on edification rather than revelation. Revelation's given complete in the word, accompanied with signs, miracles, and wonders, now gifts of edification, teaching, exhortation, preaching, mercy. Those are given to the church now to use the divine revelation we've been given and express it. And it's reliable because of that. So what? What does this mean? Well, I think it means a lot. The force of familiarity that I spoke of earlier is vanquished when we hear the gospel afresh each day, when we pay much closer attention to what the gospel is, how great salvation is. It's not so familiar if you preach the gospel to yourself every day. The force of time or the force of, of uh, busyness is vanquished. We finally give the reading of Scripture its po- proper place in our lives. It may take uh, a real hard discipline at first to make sure you are spending time in the Word every day as a family, as an individual. But it becomes more important than the other things we do when we start seeing this great salvation. We start paying much closer attention to what it means. The force of peer pressure is vanquished when we seek to live for the kingdom and for our Savior who's provided this great salvation rather than our neighbor or our classmate. The force of our sinful flesh is vanquished when we come to discover that Christ has lordship over those demons, he has lordship over whatever is gripping your life, and he can cast it out. The force of worry is vanquished when we begin to take Jesus at his word and believe that God is sovereign, and tomorrow has enough worries of its own. 
You know, I began this uh, tying together by giving a picture of Niagara Falls and the river. I said that staying or trying to simply uh, staying put or simply trying to tread water will ultimately lead you to drift away. And I think that's probably where a lot of us a lot of us find ourselves. Where are you in your walk with the Lord? Just trying to do the dead man's float. Maybe you were doing the dead man's float. Maybe you need to place your trust in Christ. Maybe you need to put your faith in Christ. And I understand what that means. Christ has to breathe new life. God has to breathe new life into you. But I want to again remind you that we're all in the dead man's float until Christ revives us, gives us a new heart. Maybe that's where you're at. Trust him. Place your trust in him that he be your Lord. But also, maybe you're simply trying to tread water. Don't kid yourself. You are floating down the wrong way. You're either moving forward in your walk or you're moving back. There is no such thing as just staying stagnant. If this is you, I, got, I have simple advice. Start swimming. Okay, if you're, start swimming. That's what you got to do. I mean, I, again, no magic formula. Start swimming. And if, if you're having trouble on your own, that's the beauty of the covenant community. There, people, God has us all at different stages, and we all struggle, and we all are at different points of strength, and that's the beauty of being in community because someone is, is being receiving the blessing of the Lord, is growing in their strength in the Lord. They're decreasing, and Christ is increasing. If you're that person, look around for people doing the dead man's float or tread water and help them, help each other. It could be me today and you tomorrow, and this is the opposite. The point is we're community for a reason. We don't all go live independent Christian lives and check in and see how we all did this week. Kind of compare each other. Boy, you had a great week. Let's not do that. And I don't mind when we we pass niceties like, how are you? But you know and I know that we really don't have time to say how we really are. It's something we do on Sunday morning. That's why you got to spend more time than Sunday morning together. Because that's all I can ask you is how you're doing on Sunday morning. And I know you're not necessarily always telling me the truth on that. Nor maybe am I. So the moments that we have together will help us in our walk where we are that we might be brought up together in our walk, in our our striving against that current that comes against us. God has given us a means to work against that. You know, in in conclusion, there is a point right before the falls. I don't know how far, maybe a mile up from the falls. Because the water starts getting, if you've been there, you know they, they get white fast. They start, the rocks come up and it goes fast. And there's a wire that goes across with these colored pillars that basically are telling you, if you get to that point, you're past the point of no return. Uh, You need to be out of your boat. Someone needs to rescue you. You're in trouble. Uh, That's what it means to be up against the wire, so to speak. You're in trouble. And the beautiful way this analogy breaks down that I painted for you today is that there is no point of no return if you have breath in your lungs here today. There is no. I don't care what it is in your life. God's grace is greater. It is greater. And it, he could save you. There's no point of no return. If you're hearing my words, there is no point of no return for you. Today, let it be the day of salvation. Come to Christ. Come to Christ. Because he can save you. And I don't care what it is. There's no way you could shock him. Come to Christ. We, brothers and sisters, much must pay much closer attention to what we've heard, lest we drift away from it. Let us pray. Lord, we are grateful for the gospel of grace. We are grateful that you have given us a great salvation. And Lord, I pray that you would change us as a result, that you would transform us as a result, that we would be a witness to this world for you, for your glory. 
And I pray, O oh Lord, that you'd strengthen my brothers and sisters as they go forth from this place this week. Strengthen them to live for you, to preach the gospel to themselves every day as they open your word and pay much closer attention to what they have heard. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, our salvation is free.